So uh, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 90. So if you're if you closed your Bible, you might want to open it up again, and uh, so that you can follow along as we walk through that passage. It seems to be a fitting text for us to consider as we um, are at this hinge between the past 70 years and what God has for us in the years to come uh, by his grace and by his providence. So it's a sobering psalm, and in that spirit, I want to just have us begin by thinking about a question that I asked to the prayer meeting crowd a couple of weeks ago. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Okay. Some of you are those genealogy people, aren't you? Okay. So you people aside, how about great-great-grandparents? Okay, just a couple of hands. All right, so of course there are the genealogy buffs, but by and large, most of us don't know much if we even know the names of our great-grandparents. So here's the moral of the story. We're all going to die and be forgotten. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning (laughs) for the encouragement? We're all going to die soon and be forgotten. Soon. Somewhere between 55 and 60 million people die every year on planet Earth. That's almost 5 million per month. About 150,000 per day. A little over 100 per minute. And roughly about two every second. There is nothing more certain than death. And yet, it's taboo in our culture, isn't it? And not just out there in the culture, in here. We don't want to think about it. We want to avoid thinking about it. But God actually loves us too much to let us avoid thinking about it. So Ecclesiastes 7, which is, I think, um, I've I've had the privilege of doing several funerals together with Pastor Ryle. And oftentimes, when I'm doing a funeral, I think of and oftentimes share Ecclesiastes 7 too that says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a, a funeral than a wedding. I mean, wouldn't you rather go to the wedding reception than a, than a funeral? But as far as wisdom is concerned, because it goes on to say, this is the end of everyone and the living will lay it to heart. So if we're going to be wise, we've got to face reality. And a funeral does that for us. And Psalm 90 does that for us. Death is a preacher And we need to listen and not stick our fingers in our ears. That's oftentimes what we do. We stick our fingers in our ears. We turn up the volume. We get busy so that we don't have to face reality. We don't have to be reminded of it. But there's grace to be had through God's truth as we face 
our end and prepare for it. So that's what Psalm 90 is going to do for us, among other things. Um, it's also very encouraging. So it's not all heaviness and um, sobering this morning. So we'll look at it in a few points here. You can follow along on the screen. Um, Point number one is found in verses one and two, God's everlasting faithfulness. So this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and he writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home, our refuge in all generations. Actually, literally, it's generation after generation. In Hebrew, it's the generation word repeated. So it parallels what comes later in verse two, that God is from everlasting to everlasting. And so he is our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, you are God. So a few things to note here. First, notice that this psalm is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, which is a title that usually refers to a prophet, okay? So the fact that this is a psalm of Moses will actually become important to understanding what's going on in the psalm when we get to verses 3 to 11. So just kind of file that away for a minute. So Moses prays, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home, our refuge in all generations. The Lord is before all things. He's the creator of all things, including time. He alone is God. He had no beginning. He has no end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he has been and ever will be the dwelling place of his people. There is no more stable home in all the universe than God. Aren't you glad he is our past, present, and future home. Moses was displaced like almost his whole life. The only time he had a stable home was when he was in Pharaoh's house. And he left that trusting God and his call, right? So he was displaced all of his life like a pilgrim, like a sojourner. But he was at home in God all of his life through all of those difficult circumstances and it's the same for us. Deuteronomy 33:26 is probably underneath Psalm 90 verses 1 to 2. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, which is a, another name for Israel, it means upright one. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. That is good news. So we are not here by accident this morning celebrating 70 years of this church's, our church's existence. The Lord has been the dwelling place of his people here at Bethel through the generations, seven decades worth. We, who presently call Bethel home, are the beneficiaries of so many who found the Lord to be their dwelling place and their source of strength. Some of them are now in the Lord's presence. Some of, the, some of you are scattered elsewhere. And some of you are back with us this morning, and we're glad that you're here. And we're thankful for your ministry and your sacrifice and your faithfulness. And all of that is trickling down to us 
generations to follow years later. So verses one and two are true, right? Do you have an amen to this prayer? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. So if you, if you say amen, why don't we just say this prayer together? Ready? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's good news. But there's bad news. Our transients. Point number two. Look at verses three to 11 here. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, or you could translate that, O children of Adam. So you return man, individuals, we all die, we all return to dust, and you say, return, O children of Adam, to dust, collectively, mankind collectively as a result of the fall. No one is getting out of here alive, and I don't mean like out of the building this morning. I mean out of planet Earth. Death affects all mankind. Actually, that dust word in verse 3, it may make you think of Genesis 3, but it's a different word. You know, Adam was made from the dust. Actually, Genesis 2. So this word actually means crushing or pulverizing. So really the connotations here are judgment. So we return to dust, and Psalm 90 is making it clear that it's through judgment. It's a result of our sin. So it's God's judgment on our sin. I mean, he only has to say the word. Death is not just the natural course of things. It is the judgment of God. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And our first parents ate, and now we all die. We all sin, we all die. The wages of sin is death. So we are so small and fleeting and weak. And he is everlasting and all-powerful Look at verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Just a few hours, three or four hours. A thousand years. Think about what's happened in a thousand years. That is a watch in the night to God, the everlasting God. More judgment language. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Just one day. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed, which has connotations of rootlessness and insecurity and flux. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. From death, from judgment, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Maybe some of you are familiar with T.S. Eliot's poem, The Hollow Men, and it ends with, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So this could be like 
Moses, why is this so negative? I mean, you're leading the people of God and it's wrath and anger. Well, stop and think about his life. He led the people out of Egypt, right? And that was an amazing deliverance. The Exodus was an amazing deliverance by God. But the people had hard hearts and they grumbled and they complained. And so let's say there were, we don't know exactly how many Israelites came out, but maybe a million. How long does it take for that whole generation to pass away? 40 years they were in the wilderness. How many people is that dying every day? because of the judgment of God on their grumbling, complaining, rebellious spirits. We'd rather be back in Egypt. So Moses is leading this people, by and large hard-hearted, and it's just death and suffering and death left, right, and center for 40 years. And then even because of his sin, he didn't even enter the promised land. So you can see why this language fits the situation, right? So it's just so clear, and God is just drilling it home. Our lives are fleeting. They're transient. James wrote it like this in chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? What's my life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or in Ecclesiastes, you know, that language that it, the book opens with, vanity of vanities. Sometimes we, we think that means it's meaningless. It's actually not the primary meaning of those words. It's fleeting, fleeting, trans, like you're trying to grasp it and it just goes through your fingers. In fact, that's kind of why there's so much tension in the book of Ecclesiastes because eternity is in our hearts. But everything is so fleeting and as soon as you have something that's, you know, joyful, it just is through your fingers. Nothing lasts So our years are gone, we fly away, and so eternity's in our hearts, and yet they're soon gone, our, our years. Toil and trouble, they're soon gone, and we fly away. That creates this incredible tension. We have angst and fear and ache and longing, and we want meaning and stability and hope, but our lives are so transient. But again, it's not just that they're transient. It's that we're going to die, and it's because of judgment. We die because of sin. Death is judgment for sin. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So Psalm 95 is actually a commentary on the Exodus. And near the end of that psalm, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they've not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So death is not just natural, as I said before. It's not just the way of all flesh. It's God's work. It's his judgment on sin. And it's at his command. He has numbered our days. Psalm 139. Death is not accidental. It's not a matter of misfortune. It is in God's hands for each and every one of us. He is the one with whom we have to do. He's the one to whom we will give an account. So it's not just the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. The wages of sin is death for all of us. 
I mean, did you notice in this psalm, there's no outside enemies mentioned. The Egyptians coming after them or the Canaanites that they were afraid to go into the land. No, not even like lack of water and food. Those aren't even mentioned. Death and the wrath and judgment of God are the problem, the biggest problem in view here. Look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's a little awkward. What does that mean? Who considers the power of your anger in proportion to the fear you deserve? Like, here's the thing. We live for the moment. We don't think of our mortality. We don't think of the consequences of our sin. We think, I mean, I think this is probably true for most of us, even if we know better, we think our biggest problem is having to do with money or job or relationships or depression or anxiety or loneliness or even that death is our biggest problem. No, actually, the judgment of God is the biggest problem. Blaise Pascal wrote this. He said, they fear the most trifling things, foresee and feel them, And the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It is a monstrous thing to see one in the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. So this psalm is reorienting us to what really matters, what our biggest problem is. The problem, capital P, beneath the problem of sin is judgment. Who naturally considers that? We don't by nature. I mean, we as a race, human race, have been downplaying the judgment of God ever since Satan lied about it, saying, you shall not surely die. C.S. Lewis says this, in the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it, re- it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. Those are the two options. So we've sinned. The wages of sin is death and judgment. We've provoked the wrath of the everlasting God. Where in the world are we going to go? To him. Run to him. He has been the dwelling place for his people through all generations. And he can be your dwelling place, your refuge, your home, your place of safety amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. 
So run for your lives to your eternal home, to your refuge in God. And when you do, what will you find? Welcome home. The arms of the Lord Jesus spread on the cross for sinners like us who deserve death are spread on the cross so that he could take the judgment for us so that we could receive the welcome. He takes our sin, we get the welcome, we get an eternal home. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in him. So there's bad news, yes, but there is good news that trumps the bad news. So point number three, our need and God's grace, verses 12 to 17. So we are desperate, we're needy. Psalm makes that clear. But God is so gracious. So in light of verses 1 to 2, in light of verses 3 to 11, this psalm teaches us to pray, to cry out to God. First for wisdom, look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It actually, that word means to bring in, like harvest, to, to harvest a heart of wisdom. God sows these seeds of truth in Psalm 90, and when they are planted in our hearts and we cry out, teach me to number my days, we reap the harvest of wisdom so that we can spend our days wisely. And this request kind of sets up the other requests in verses 13 to 17. So remember back to verse 11. Who considers... The power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? Well, who knows? Um, I'm sorry. So who considers this? None of us naturally do. So teach us, Lord. That's the, the flow of thought there. Teach us. Sow your word in us. Show us reality. Help us not run from it. Help us to face it. Show us what, really, what we really need so that we gain a heart of wisdom and live in light of that wisdom. So God has numbered our days. So we need to number our days and not live as if we're never going to die. Um, a commentary on the Psalms by a guy named James Luther Mays, he writes this, time is the medium of our mortality and so the favorite focus of our folly. We do not concentrate on the fact that we are given only a limited though unknown number of days and years and undertake to live them with wisdom. The young think they are immortal. The old despair because their time is over. Time is a burden when we have to wait, a scarcity when we are busy. It is the source of anxiety, illusion, remorse. Wisdom, in contrast, sees the time given as the unique opportunity, the chance to be and do in the fear of the Lord. is the kind of wisdom we gain when we recognize God's everlasting character. He is our refuge, our dwelling place. When we recognize our transients and we run to him to teach us to number our days. There's a pastor named T.J. Timms and he said this I thought was so helpful. We tend to think that the realization of death wisens us up but it doesn't. The realization of our mortality might wake us up, 
but it doesn't wisen us up. For instance, Ernest Becker in Denial of Death writes, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. (laughs) You laugh, we laugh, it is true. The irony of man's condition is that the deepest need to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation but it is life itself which awakens it. And so we must shrink from being fully alive. Do you see that conundrum? Like if I really face reality, uh, so I run from reality so that I can live a little bit. But then I'm not really living because I'm avoiding reality. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. We need wisdom so that we live our days wisely. So as as we look back on 70 years of God's faithfulness to Bethel, back over however many years you've had personally, and as we head into the years to come, whether they be few or many, oh, how we need wisdom to spend our days well. Let's pray this prayer. If we think about what Bethel has been. We give thanks this morning. There's so many stories in this room of God's faithfulness. But what are people going to say in 70 years from now if the Lord tarries or five or 10 years from now? It's going to depend on how we relate to the Lord. We, the people of Bethel, need to be crying out to the Lord for wisdom so that we spend our days well, so that what we leave to the generations coming behind us is a faithful legacy, the gift of faithfulness. So we need wisdom, but we need more than wisdom. Secondly, pity, verse 13. Return, O Yahweh, O Lord. Dwell with us. Return. How long? Have pity on your servants. So connect the dots here. God's command to turn back to dust. You know, back there in verse 3, his command, turn back to dust. That is a command we can't not obey. Like when God says turn back to dust, sorry, you can't disobey that one. But now Moses is pleading for God to turn back and have mercy, compassion, pity. Okay, so he's saying this in the midst of or near the end of the time in the wilderness. And you know what God did, right, for his people throughout history, Old Testament, God was merciful to his people over and over again. He pitied his people. He delivered them. He sought to dwell with them. And yet so often they stiff-armed him. They rebelled over and over again. None of the kings, none of the deliverers was ever able to lead the people into happily ever after. Return, O Yahweh. Dwell with us. Don't leave us. Don't forsake us. So what did God do? He returned. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden And then because of sin, a separation was made, but he returned. Jesus came. God dwelt with us, and his pity knew no bounds. Return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. He had pity on us to the utmost. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18? Jesus tells of the servant who owed an unpayable debt, and he pled for mercy, 
And then Matthew 18, 27 says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And that parable was a picture of our unpayable debt, each and every one of us. And God, through Christ, is willing and able to forgive all of that debt. Jesus came to pay our unpayable debt. If you have cried out, have pity on me, have mercy on me, the sinner, he has done so. And all your sins are sent away from you as far as the east is from the west. So Moses teaches us to pray for God's wisdom, for his pity, his mercy, and now for satisfaction. Verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Remember, everything was rootless and insecure and in flux in verses 3 to 11. And now we want security and stability satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. So what's Moses referring to? 430 years in Egypt, right? 40 years in the wilderness, affliction and death. Their days were spent under the wrath of God. So much suffering, so much affliction. So do you see what Moses is asking? He's praying for his own generation and for future generations of the people of God, especially future generations, for the Lord to satisfy them, that they would be able to rejoice and be glad all their days. So, so fitting for us to pray the same prayer as we walk forward in wisdom we have the pity and compassion of the Lord in Christ. And as we seek to leave a legacy of faithfulness to the generations that follow, how important is this prayer that we pray day after day? Satisfy us. I mean, why do we sin? Sin is what you do. I think it was John Piper that said, sin is what you do when you're, when you're not satisfied in God, when you're looking for satisfaction someplace else. So satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. And then he says, you know, do it for as long as you've afflicted us, as much as we've seen evil. So again, you can imagine Moses, 430 years, 40 years. Well, guess what? For those who trust in Christ, God will do way better than answer that prayer. Take your vapor of a life. Let's say it is filled with suffering and affliction 20 years worth. You had some good years, but man, once you hit 40, <laughs> or 30 years of affliction and suffering, or let's say your days are just filled with suffering, like so good to see Barry on there. 77 years, I think. Many of you know Barry and his suffering. Or if you even had a life full of suffering for 80 or 90 or 100 years, listen, we deserve to live all of our days and our eternity under his wrath. But now in the new covenant, living under the grace of God, we spend all our days under his mercy and favor. And so we can spend all our days rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that's not cheap, rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna. No, 
In this world, you will have trouble, absolutely. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Rejoice in the Lord always. And, Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Listen, we live in the midst of the dusk. I mean, this world is broken, dark, but it is not the dust before nightfall. It is the dusk before the dawn. The dawn of the everlasting and radiant day that we all long for. So it can seem that we're suffering in the dusk that leads to hopeless night. But we are suffering in the dusk that leads to the dawn of the eternal day. So satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you all of our days on earth and then we look forward to fullness of joy and pleasures evermore at your right hand forever. God's steadfast love is super abundant and endures. It's everlasting and infinite so we can be satisfied in it and it will fill us with joy even for all of our days, even in the midst of terrible suffering, we can rejoice in the Lord always, even in the valley of tears, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And he's not going to just make us glad for as many days as he's afflicted us or for as many days as we have seen evil. He will do infinitely better than that. He is going to do so much more than we ask or imagine. So whatever your suffering, and I say this sensitively, whether it's abuse, trauma, physical suffering, chronic pain, cancer, singleness, loneliness, depression, even a life cut short, or whatever it is, our healing and joy can and does begin now. But what is ahead for all who are in Christ? All brokenness, all disease healed, innocence and purity restored, shame wiped away, and honor bestowed. Every tear wiped away. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the greatest love, our faithful, eternal husband. He is perfectly and eternally faithful, and we're going to live happily ever after. No more crying, no more pain, no more sadness, no more depression, no more anxiety, fullness of joy forever, never a fear or threat again. So listen, listen. Perfect and complete and superabundant peace, security, joy for one year. In eternity and then 10 years and then 50 years and then 500 years and then a thousand years and when we've been there 10,000 years we've no less days to sing God's praise no wonder Paul wrote Romans 8 18 I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us So we ask for wisdom. We ask for God's pity, and he's given it to us in Christ. He offers it to us in Christ. We ask for satisfaction in him. We ask for joy in him. And finally, favor, verses 16 and 17, for fruit that lasts. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor the beauty, the pleasantness, that word can be translated, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Again, think of the the flux and the rootlessness and our, our lives are here and gone 
in those earlier verses, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our lives are a vapor, but we want it to count. Don't you want your life to count? You don't want to waste your life, neither do I. Well, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So Jesus said, abide in me, my words in you, and you will bear much fruit, fruit that will last. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So his work precedes our work. Let your work be shown. Establish the work of our hands. And here's this curious juxtaposition in this psalm. Things that are laid side by side. God's eternity and our transience. We are a vapor. We're a mist. All our years are less than a watch in the night. Actually, a thousand years are less than a watch in the night. We're all going to die soon and be forgotten. It's sobering. It could be depressing. But at the same time, When God establishes the work of our hands, we can have a massive multi-generational impact and legacy. It's been so encouraging and, you know, stir me up for Ray and Janie Ortland to talk about praying for 10 generations of God's grace in their family. Like, oh, I'm praying for my kids. I should start praying for my grandkids and on and on and on. Like, do you, do you know that your faithfulness, I mean, what if you lead one person to Christ in your life? Like, what, what that could mean downstream? Like, way more than you could even imagine. So we, we're so small and we're here today and gone tomorrow and we need to face it. Teach us the number of our days. But when God establishes the work of our hands when we are depending on him like this who knows what God will use little old me little old you little young you whatever okay like and how there could be a massive impact beyond anything we could ask or imagine so let's pray Bethel the problem of verses 1 to 11 is also the solution of verses 13 to 17 our biggest problem is actually God and his judgment but he's taking care of that in Christ and he is our biggest solution and help. So listen, we can pray, we can be confident, we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that labor for the Lord is not in vain. Yes, we're going to die, and sooner than we all want. But Jesus already struck death's death blow. You know death's days are numbered? Yeah, teach us to number our days, but remind us that Jesus already wrote death's obituary. We can read it in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Paul Tripp says, one day we're going to be invited to the one funeral we actually want to attend, the funeral of sin and death. Death's days are numbered. So we can lay down our lives in loving sacrifice, and by God's grace, he will establish the work of our hands, and we will bear fruit that will last, and then we can just die and be forgotten and go be with Jesus fullness of pleasure forever. So let's pray and then we're going to participate in the Lord's table and then we'll close with a closing song on Psalm 90. So if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, you are, even if you're a visitor with us, you're welcome to participate in the table with us. And if you didn't grab one of the little packets of um, bread and cup, put your hand up, and the guys in the back, Greg and Sam, will get one to you, okay? So let's prepare our hearts. Let's face reality. If there's sin that we need to confess, if there's anything that we need to get right, let's do that, and then let's give thanks to our great Savior who killed death, destroyed death, and by his grace can establish the work of our hands so that our lives count for time and eternity. So I'm going to pray and then give some time for all of us to prepare our hearts before we participate together. Oh God, you are our dwelling place. Thank you that you sent Jesus to dwell with us so that we could dwell with you. He was rejected and forsaken so that we could be welcomed in to our eternal home. Please teach us to number our days. Please satisfy us with your steadfast love. And help us, Lord, to be dependent on you, dependent on your work so that our work matters and our work lasts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.